Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The Humboldt Broncos families, after a week of sentencing hearings for Jaskarit Singh Sidhu, now begin a seven-week wait for the judge's verdict. I spoke today with Scott Thomas. His 18-year-old son and Humboldt Broncos player Evan was killed in the crash. Mr. Thomas is the father who met privately with the truck driver. Western Canada does not feel it is being treated fairly. Angus Reid conducted a national poll, which we spoke about with Chachi Curl, the executive director of Angus Reid last weekend. Well, I had an opportunity to speak with Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, about this very issue, and here's how that went. NGOs plan to lobby senators to nix a cross-country tour to hear Canadians' views on federal environmental legislation and who's funding these NGOs. I spoke with Vivian Krauss, the Canadian researcher who revealed the money trail from the U.S. entities to Canadian Enviro NGOs to keep Alberta oil from international markets. Listen. British security services are resurrecting Cold War plans to evacuate the Queen and the royal family from London should there be a hard Brexit followed by potential rioting in London. Professor Alan Sked from the London School of Economics had this to say about that. The importance and value of referenda to instruct governments beyond elections. The British people voted by majority to exit the EU, yet various factions in the UK are trying to upend the referendum decision. Lucy Stamm is a Swiss member of parliament. Switzerland has for years, for centuries, conducted referenda where the federal government must follow the will of the people. The Humboldt Broncos families, after a week of sentencing hearings for Jaskrit Singh Sidhu, are now going to have to wait for seven weeks for the judge to deliver a verdict. Scott Thomas is the father of uh, 18-year-old Humboldt Broncos player Evan, who lost his life in that crash. And uh, Mr. Thomas met privately with the truck driver Singh Sidhu during uh, the last week, and we spoke with Mr. Thomas about two weeks ago on the program Scott, thank you so much for coming back, t- and uh, and and I I I have to know. I mean, I, it's there's got to be no way for you to be able to prepare for what you experienced over those four days last week. The emotional toll must have been crushing. Yeah, thanks for having me, Roy. Um, no question, it was uh, the most emotionally challenging week I've had, probably, well, definitely since the accident, and and even. Um, in some ways even worse than the week of the accident because the range of human tragedy in that courtroom was just unbelievable. And um, every time you thought, because you know what your story is, you know what you're dealing with. I know what the emotions and stuff I'm dealing, my wife, Lori, my daughter, Jordan, but then you go and you listen to Mark Cross's fiance, who has a totally different human experience like she lost the love of her life the man she was going to spend the rest of her life with and then you hear a couple of the boys girlfriends speak and it just breaks your heart because it's it's emotions that I didn't deal with up to this point and it just slaps you right in the face it it was just every time you turned around it was another story and another story and another story Scott how well did the families and and the people who are brought together by this tragedy know one another prior to the uh, the accident. And how well have you gotten to know each other since? Yeah, before 
like with most junior hockey teams, Roy, uh, these kids are young adults, so to some degree you kind of set them free, and and we're from all over Western Canada, so, I mean, we were fortunate enough, we're only an hour away from Humboldt, we made a lot of the games, but some of the families from Slave Lake and Edmonton, you know, they don't get too many games, so you see some faces, you recognize some faces, you nod and say hi, and then when the game's over, your son comes out, and you're lucky to get six minutes with them before they got to go back in the bus, and, and then you kind of nod and say goodbye and see you guys at the next game. So, I mean, we certainly recognized people and had some pleasant um, acquaintances and stuff, but we certainly we didn't know each other, and now now we know each other's deepest, darkest feelings, and um, it's uh, it's become a family in more ways than one. And to hear those victims' impact statements from people you really didn't know or didn't know well at all, and then you're intimately involved with their lives as you share a common tragedy, that must have been just absolutely unbearable at times. It was. Um, my wife, Lori, I think her nose is still raw uh, from the crying and, and the Kleenexes that... Uh, that she used there last week and um it, at times it was unbearable at times you just look down and close your eyes and 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 weep you just you just your soul weeps your heart breaks and you 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 just at times don't even know how to process the information that you get and and then you remember or you have to remember or you're reminded by the actions of counsel well, this is a sentencing hearing, and 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 so the the crown comes forward and they're recommending a ten year prison sentence, which could lead to day parole in thirty four months, eligibility for full parole in forty months, and presumed release a two thirds sentence served. Um, how do you feel viscerally about the recommendation for a ten year sentence? I've certainly prepared myself uh, for something like that. I, I understand, uh, I'm no lawyer, but I I understand some of the things about Canadian law, the the whole idea of consecutive versus concurrent, and yeah, there's 16 charges here and 13 more charges, but, you know, no matter what the ruling is, they're going to run concurrently. So I've, I've prepared myself for the fact that it's going to be probably in the single digits for the numbers of years he's going to get, and then exactly as you described so those decisions are made by i guess way smarter people than me and i have absolutely no control over them whether i agree with it or not i mean those things are legislated and there's years of precedent and the judges are are going to you know use all the factors to decide what that number is going to be i and then hopefully there's some deterrent factor in there too to make other people realize whether they're bus drivers or semi drivers or car drivers. You just you got to stop at stop signs like you have to. So there's so many factors that go into this, and I'm I'm too emotionally involved in it to be rational about that. So thank God Judge Cardinal's going to come up with something that makes sense. Yeah, you know, there. I was thinking about this last night, Scott, and there are people who are appreciative of the fact that he pled guilty to all charges, and, I, and, and that is something that I, I, you and I talked about last time we spoke, relieves at least the families and, and loved ones of, the, of a trial. But at the same time, last night I was thinking, if you take on something that you're not 
qualified to take on and it involves driving a massive truck like Mr. Singh Sidhu drove, there's personal responsibility there. There's adult decision-making that's taken place, and there has to be the responsibility quotient that, uh, that, that, is, that is included. Yeah, no question. He, 100% of the, the final result here rests on his shoulders. He decided to be a truck driver, and I mean, we can debate, and, and I hope that we do debate the situation that allowed him to to be in behind that wheel. I mean, that's a whole other story. But it he is. decided to, and he was responsible for that vehicle, and he decided to run the stop sign. And uh, yeah, he's a hundred percent responsible. So he ha- <clears throat> he has to wear this sentence, no matter what it is. Um, and he has to. There's no question that he's got to go to jail and he's got to put his time in and and hopefully become a better person out of it. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine what it is you're experiencing and your family is experiencing. And you know that people in this country are, are really have embraced everyone uh, in, involved, all the families involved, all the, all the uh, people who are involved with, with the victims of the crash and care deeply, deeply about you all. Uh, you also met, and in, when we first spoke, you said at some time going forward, you might want to uh, speak with Singh Sidhu and ask him some questions and, and talk to him. I, you spoke with him during the time of the sentencing hearing. I know you're not going to speak specifically or in detail about that conversation, Scott, but can you share anything with us about what took place? Sure. I, I was caught a bit off guard. I I didn't expect the circumstances as they did. I I don't know if it's common practice or not for people in that position to meet with victims' families before sentences are handed out. I, when I said I'd like the opportunity to meet him, I kind of assumed it would be after his sentence was done and he was a free man and and we could sit down and talk. But, uh, yeah, on uh, Tuesday, I believe it was, or Wednesday, whatever the last day was of the victim statements, his, I assumed it was his brother, but may have been his cousin came up and tapped me on the knee and said would you please like to meet with our family after court today and I assume you um, saw most of the times I spoke in public and specifically that week about how I'd I'd welcome the chance to meet with them and ask him a few questions and um, so I said yes absolutely and uh, after court was over I kind of took the the long way around to meet him to hopefully let the most of the media types file out of the room and uh I walked up to um, the young man, and he goes, do you want to speak here, or should we find go back to our room? And I said, no, let's go back to the room. And so uh, him and I, I think it was Mr. Sidhu's uncle, and I started walking, and then uh, Mr. Sidhu followed. And, uh, yeah, we walked in the room, and I, I didn't know uh, for sure whether it was just going to be the cousin and the uncle or, or if Sadu was going to be there because he, when he offered the opportunity, he just said our family. And then I turned around and, and Mr. Sadu was, Mr. Sadu was right there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we began, uh, we began talking. Right. And, and you, you would prefer to hold off on what your conversation was with him until after the sentencing, right? Yeah, I would. Uh, I have said it was very emotional. Uh, I said I have said there's been a lot of tears on both sides. 
Um, and he was entirely consistent with what he said in court on record. A lot of the things we talked about, but everything he said in court was exactly what he said to me, uh, in the, in our private discussions. And, um, we of course discussed some other things, but, uh, um, I definitely asked him the question why. And again, his reply was very consistent with what uh, he and his lawyer said in court. Um, and then we discussed a lot of other things too, but uh, uh, in the end, it was exactly what I had asked for. I was given the opportunity to talk to him, and and we did. And it was, uh, as I said before, I I left there more emotionally drained and confused. And just when you think you're starting to process everything that's involved in this case, see another another level of of emotion and uh it just it's unbelievable what a nightmare for you what a nightmare for for everyone involved and and being pulled back into the center of it all with the sentencing hearing going on i have to wait seven weeks to for for the uh, for the verdict um just a, a minute here on on what has to happen as far as truck safety is concerned regulation is concerned we spoke yesterday with Stephen Laskowski, the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance, and they're determined to push harder for or hard for 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 licensing changes and uh, and uh, uh, regulation changes, and also to the, the companies companies that are not responsible and not responsive to safety have to be held accountable. They can't just be uh, allowed to, uh, to to walk away and and let a driver take the responsibility. The driver has responsibility. But the companies have to be investigated very thoroughly as well. I agree 100%, Roy. I said I harbor and will harbor harder feelings to the people that employed this man and the association that allowed him to come into that position and even the governments that failed to regulate this industry for so long. Yes, he decided he took the responsibility as an adult to have that job and to run that stop sign, but... If I was his employer, I would be embarrassed, quite frankly, to to release someone like that with a vehicle like that in the situation that he was in. Like, how could you send somebody with basically three weeks of training to a part of the world that he's never been to before with a truck that he can't operate? Like, how could that has to weigh on your mind? Like, that just it's unconceivable to me as a hockey coach or a father. I would I would never put one of my my hockey players, some rookie out against uh, Connor McDavid, he just got no chance for success, and that's what happened here. He he never, ever should have been behind that wheel. No, he should and, not. No. should not. And somehow he got there, and, and then the owner of this company, 18 days later, turns around and starts up another company with a different name out of the same house. Like, that tells you right there his more culpability in this. Like, he didn't care. He's trying to turn a quick buck, and operate within a system that somehow allows them to do that and system has to change unbelievable yeah it all has to change scott thank you for for speaking with us uh you're helping a lot of people in this country also cope it's an it's obviously an unmitigated nightmare for you and your family and all the all the families but hearing from you and hearing your voice will help a lot of people in this country who feel such a such a bond with you and and with everyone and thank you so much and uh, let you and I stay in touch as well. 
for sure. Thanks for having me again, Roy. I, uh, I know how hard this has hit everybody in Canada, any parent. And, you know, a few people said, you know, lots of parents have lost children, and yeah, they have. And um, ours is just a little bit more public, but every every person's loss is the same. And we're just given an opportunity here to hopefully make a change and do the best that we can to make sure this doesn't happen. You're a good man. Yeah. You're a good man. Thank you, Scott. Yep. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Last weekend, as we spoke about Western Canadians not feeling like they're being treated fairly in in Canada, several regions of the country feel they're not being fairly treated by Ottawa, but Western Canadians particularly. And David Aiken, the chief political correspondent for Global News, this past Wednesday wrote an in-depth piece on the poll for Global News Canadians in the West, more than those in the East, feel that Ottawa doesn't treat them fairly. Well, today we're going to speak with a Western Canadian Premier about this particular question of the federal government's lack of fairness displayed toward Western Canada, and the Premier, of course, is Scott Mould, who spends from Saskatchewan, who is very kind to us with his time. Premier, thank you very much for the time today. Well, I appreciate it. So, roughly 75% of Canadians in the West believe their province and this is not breaking down all four provinces, but sev- roughly 75% believe their province is not receiving fair treatment from Ottawa. That's a big number and one the Prime Minister should take seriously. Your perspective on that, please. Well, I, absolutely. I believe the Prime Minister should take it uh, very seriously. It's not a surprising uh, number for me. Um, we have, uh, you know, repeatedly seen attempts by, by uh, recently, uh, by the, uh, you know, federal Canadians are viewing as as nothing short of a, an attack on the industries that we have uh, here in in uh, Western Canada. Wealth for people that are living in Saskatchewan. Premier, can I uh, may I, may I ask yeah. you to may I ask you to call us back? We're just having a, a an interruption here, a techno interruption, so we can't really hear what you're saying. If you wouldn't mind calling us back, that'd be great. Sure. Okay, we'll just wait for uh, Premier Mo to call us back in the studio. On this poll, uh, nearly 75%, nearly three out of four Canadians, just quoting uh, David Aiken's piece here, living west of Ontario, believe their province is not treated fairly by the federal government. And Westerners who feel that way, um, that the rest of the country is not giving them any respect, say it's been getting worse in recent years. Premier, let's get back to you and, uh, and your thoughts on three-quarters of Western Canadians feeling Ottawa's not be treating them fairly. Right, Roy, can you hear me now? Much better. Great, I apologize for that. Uh, it's not a surprising number in, uh, from my perspective. Um, you know, the Western Canadian uh, uh, people have been feeling for some time that some of the initiatives that have been coming out of our federal government are, are nothing short of an attack on on the industries uh, that create wealth uh, here in Western Canada for, for Western Canadian families, but also for families right across the nation uh, in the way uh, that we participate uh, in equalization and other programs uh, in our nation. So the numbers aren't surprising, and, and the federal government should most certainly uh, take note of them. And, Premier, it's not just provincial governments that are speaking that way. This is the people who do the voting. This is the, uh, the, the Western Canadian on the street who has this sense, and it's, it's an increasing frustration that Ottawa is not listening and not treating the, 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 the region fairly. Is there going to be a Western provinces coalition, potentially, facing off against Mr. Trudeau's liberals in the federal election campaign unless they magically discover that the West does, in fact, need to be heard and responded to? 
Well, the West does need to be heard and responded to uh, because of the economic uh, uh, genera- uh, wealth generation that comes out of industries here in the West. And uh, you just look at North America, what's happened in, let's take the energy industry, for example, uh, what's happened in the U.S. versus what has happened in Canada or, or vis-a-vis Western Canada. Um, most certainly the U.S. has become this energy superpower, and we're, we as uh, Canadians have become embarrassed to talk about what is the one of the most um, uh, sustainable areas of energy production in the world. So most certainly the federal government needs to take note of this going into the federal election, whether it's a a Western or geog- geographic, um, uh, um, con- you know, uh, alliance, if you will, uh, speaking to the interests uh, in certain areas, or whether it's more of a an industry or a wealth alliance uh, um, that you see speaking. You know, for example, uh, Energy East uh, goes far beyond uh, the West in joining uh, the provinces of New Brunswick, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and into Alberta with uh, what could be uh, a very, very uh, strong nation-building project. So it may not be just geography. You may see it expand, uh, you know, to industries that are creating wealth for all Canadians. Yeah, and not all of these grievances are new, but certainly the carbon tax and Trudeau's publicly stated wish to see the oil sands phased out are fundamentals of his government, and they lead to really the the the, 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 the nucleus of what appears to be his disassociation and lack of interest in Western Canada. Well, the, the, the link of uh, some of uh, the, the Prime Minister's statements and others in the federal government is starting to ring true with Western Canadians, whether it's a phase-out of the oil sands and some of the decisions they're making that is, that is uh, heading us uh, in that direction. The carbon tax, I'm uh, much more hopeful on, on where we will land there. As you know, uh, the middle of February, uh, the province of Saskatchewan will have our reference uh, case heard, and, and we're uh, quite hopeful that we're going to have a positive outcome on that. And, and then the, uh, the federal government will have to uh, start to react not only to that initiative, but to other uh, initiatives like Bill C-69 that they have put forward that, that essentially is a bill to shut down industry in our nation. I have one more question for you. There's a lot being said, a lot being written, a lot being tweeted about uh, Toronto area Liberal MP Adam Vaughn tweeting uh, yesterday that Premier Ford should be whacked after he was tweeting about whack-a-mole and, and the Premier. But that sort of language has infuriated and troubled many people. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you have a close association with, with Premier Ford philosophically, governmentally, and uh, now you have a federal liberal member of parliament tweeting out that the premier of Ontario should be whacked right after the prime minister says, we're going to run a friendly campaign. Well, not necessarily friendly, but it won't be, uh, it won't be uh, attack ads all day long. I increasingly see a number of uh, the prime minister himself and a number of federal, uh, federal MPs uh, attempting to um, you know, you don't make comments about provincial premiers and provincial uh, governments that they should be uh, paying more attention to and working uh, much more collaboratively with. In particular, when you uh, are speaking about the premier of the highest, uh, the, the population or the uh, the province with the highest population in our nation, uh, a, a, a premier that was just elected um, with an overwhelming majority in that province, you'd think uh, that that uh, federal MPs would show a little more respect uh, to. Not only uh, Premier Ford and his uh, and his government, but the people that elected uh, that government in Ontario. Uh, it's it's disappointing to say the least. And I I, I played whack a mole when I was uh, at the fair years ago. <laughs> Is it possible for Western premiers? And I'll stay with your region. Do have one more question? Is it possible for Western premiers to have a meaningful and impactful negotiation with the Trudeau government? I think it's possible for. 
more than Western Canadian premiers to have a meaningful and and uh, impactful negotiation with whoever happens to be sitting in the prime minister's chair. Okay. Did I lose you, Roy? Yeah. Did I lose no, you? Yeah, I got the answer. No, I got your yeah. answer because one of the questions, then, one of the questions that way. Yeah, one of the questions I'm going to be asking our, our our callers is whether they feel Mr. Trudeau's focus is more international than it is national, and uh, it's a legit, legitimate question given the Angus Reid poll. Well, I've, I've I've had those concerns as well. I just would say, Roy, I know you you had uh, you had Carol Bronze and uh, Scott Thomas on yes. uh, both uh, families affected with the uh, tra- the tragedy in Humboldt, and I appreciate you uh, offering them some opportunity to uh, share. Uh, some of their perspective on you know what uh, what what our, our, our humble Broncos, uh, those families in particular, and so many more have been going through with the rest of the nation. Well, Premier, it's a privilege to speak with them and uh, speak with the families and can people all across this country, as I said to Mr. Uh, Mr. Thomas and to uh, the Bronze family, to Lyle and Carol Bronze, Canadians have wrapped their arms around the the families and uh, and all who are members of the Humboldt Broncos family. And uh, we all need to know how they are, and they've been very generous with their time, particularly now. Thank you, Premier. After, uh, after a very challenging week, thank you. Thank you so much, Roy. All the best. Premier Scott Moore from Saskatchewan on the Roy Green Show. The parliamentary newspaper in, uh, in Ottawa uh, had a story, ran a story earlier in the week. NGOs plan to lobby senators to nix a cross-country tour to hear Canadians' views on federal environmental legislation. And that, of course, would be Bill C-69. The NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, don't want you and me to be attending any public um, question and answer segments on Bill C-69. I wonder why that is. Vivian Krauss joins us, Canadian researcher who revealed the money trail from U.S. entities to Canadian Enviro NGOs to keep Alberta oil from international markets and maintaining the U.S. monopoly on Canadian oil. You can uh, follow Vivian on Twitter, at Fair Questions. Vivian, thank you so much for taking the time. You've made, I mean, the you went from being somebody who was just beginning to be understood a couple of years ago, uh, maybe a year and a half or so ago, about what you were revealing to this country, to somebody the entire country is paying very close attention to, and you've provided us information uh, even the best people in our media had, uh, had no idea of and didn't pursue the way you so uh, directly did. So thank you for that. Congratulations for everything. And what do you make of the NGOs, five of them, um, saying to the Canadian Senate, no, don't go on the road and, and talk about Bill C-69, because as one of the lawyers representing one of the NGOs uh, says, and I'm paraphrasing, Canadians already have had enough consultation on C-69. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks for having me on, Roy. It's always great to be on your show. <clears throat> so I think what we have here is just another play in a very long campaign. It's been running for a decade now, um, which is against the Canadian oil and gas industry. Um, you know, I, I, we've, we've discussed this on your show several times. I, I stumbled across this quite by accident eight years ago, and I've been following it ever since. And what I found is that Every single organization, every single protest, every single report, every single media stunt, celebrity cameo, etc., um, by organizations that are systematically campaigning uh, against uh, development and export of Canadian oil, they have these organizations, and I've counted more than a hundred of them. They have a common source of funding, actually a couple of common sources, 
and they're funded as part of a campaign. It's called the Tar Sands Campaign. Um, it actually, though that many people don't know this yet, is that it actually also targets the development and export of natural gas. Um, but what I see happening is that um, Bill 69 serves the purposes of this campaign. I don't see how this bill serves Canadian interests. I do see how this bill serves American interests because it makes Canada a less attractive place to invest. And one of the main goals of this campaign, this didn't come to light until the campaign was already well underway, but one of the main goals is to scare investors, sway investment capital away from Canada. In fact, I've actually seen grants that specify that the money is to, and I quote, make investors nervous. Can you imagine? So They're not hiding well, their trail, their trail, are they? Well, we are, they are trying to now. I will t- I'd love now to they talk are. about that in a minute. But so there were five groups, I guess, that were mentioned um, in re- in relation to their their activity to try to dissuade senators from doing public consultation on this bill. Uh, at least four out of the five have been funded, uh, not huge amounts. Well, I guess a million dollars, that's what the convenience has received. Um, that's a fairly significant amount of money. But the other ones, Quebec Environmental Law, um, small amounts, Nature Canada, I haven't seen any. Uh, American money that's gone to Nature Canada as part of this campaign. That that needs to be noted. But more broadly, I think, you know, three out of the five of these of these groups are what you might call law charities, or they're they're charities that purport to do public interest litigation, or public interest legal action. And I really think that this is a realm where um, much more attention needs to be paid. And And the reason that it is important that this funding is exposed, frankly, it's not so much the fact that it's American, okay, or that it's foreign. When it comes to elections, absolutely, because there's no place in any of our elections for money from other countries. But I think on the environmental front, frankly, I, I don't have a problem with foreign foreign funding. You know, frankly, having worked with the United Nations for a decade, I see the importance of international philanthropy, and it's not at all something I would want to see curtailed anywhere in the world, let alone have Canada set a precedent for that. The problem isn't, as I see it on the environmental side, the fact that the money's foreign, but that the chari- the purposes aren't charitable. You know, this is about blocking a country out of a global market. Canada. And then, and now, and now, saying don't go on the road, and actually yeah. have Canadians listen to details of C sixty nine. And comment on them, and the argument they're making, the the Nature Canada lawyers making, is that we're already well informed. Really? Yeah, no. I think it's a bill that m- many Canadians, and me included, uh, kind of struggle uh, to understand. It's so big. It's um, it, it, you know, the, none of these bills are e- even easy to read, let alone to understand. Yeah. And it's the bigger picture. It's it's the bigger, broader picture about you know what is our role as a country. Who do we want to be? Do we want to be the country that's just pushed over to the sidelines? You know, why are we, with, with vast energy reserves, the one country that's getting um, bullied out of the market? It makes no sense. And, and, I, don't, and I don't say that in, in the spirit of, oh, you know, let's just produce as much oil as we can. Um, no, I think we do need to rethink, as I've said many times, our use of oil. We use a thousand barrels of it every second as a planet. It's an enormous amount of oil. And I think it's good to rethink how we use it. Can we use it 
more safely? Can we use it more sparingly? Can we get, uh, this is a non-renewable resource. It takes millions of years to produce this stuff. Can we do a better job with it? Yeah, those are all legitimate questions. But at the moment, we have an international marketplace that needs and wants our product, and we are stopping billions and billions of dollars from entering this country and our economy. Again, the TD Bank telling us over a seven-year period, $107 billion were lost just in the discount in which, at which we sell our oil to the United States, our one customer, because we're landlocked. And, Roy, just think of what we could have done with that money. Well, know? exactly. I mean, you know, Bill Gates is putting, you know, first it was $1 billion, then it was $2 billion that he, he put towards really innovative, out-there ideas on um, just trying to make that leap forward in terms of, of uh, how we use energy. So Bill Gates puts in two billion. We've lost a hundred billion, supposedly, in seven know, years. Or something, yeah. And now that's just think of if we'd have taken a tiny sliver of that. Mm-hmm. How, what 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 strides we could make in terms of research, innovation, new technology? And we really can't go to you know this this goal that the environmental groups keep talking about. You know, zero emissions, uh, that sort of thing. We're, we're we're a long ways away from that. Yeah. So we need to say you know hey. What's the best way? How can our country make the greatest contribution? Is it by being bullied out of the market? That'll weaken us. And we have to look after we have to look after our own interests as well as our own people, and look after what is best for Canada. You know, Bill C sixty nine replaces the NEB, where the Canadian Energy Regulator. How many people will have any idea what that is? And a new agency, the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada will be responsible for approval of the environmental assessment. I get this from the Hill Times story, and C-69 will change more than 30 existing laws altogether and would conform to one of the items demanded of the environment minister by the prime minister in his mandate letter. This is serious business, and Canadians have every right to have these public consultations, or at least public opinion sessions, on Bill C-69. Thank you, Vivian. It's always great speaking with you uh, at Fair Questions on Twitter and We're going to have you back many times, as many times as you'll come back. Thanks so much, Roy. Take care. Bye for now. Vivian Krause, she is special, and she's provided us with so much valuable information. Let me just see if I can get this this story back here. Uh, Nature Canada, this is the the one group that, uh, where their lawyer has spoken out. The Hill Times points out that Nature Canada received $276,500, from Environment Canada in the last financial year and expected to receive more this year, they received over $14,000 from the National Energy Board, 20000 from Natural Resources Canada, and 25000 from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council and expected to receive more monies this year from all those bodies. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing or a bad thing at all. However, we have the right as Canadians any time, any time, to review and share opinions and views on legislation. It's not just for a few, it's for all of us. We've been very fortunate to have uh, Professor Alan Sked join us on the show uh, over the last number of months to share with us his perspective on uh, the Brexit reality. He's a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics and has uh, published 10 books on European and British history. Professor Sked, thank you very much for the time. And let's start with this. Officials dusting off a Cold War era plan to evacuate the Queen and the entire royal family from London in a post-hard Brexit scenario. What are they expecting? 
I think most people will just laugh themselves silly at it. Um, the Queen certainly won't be moving anywhere. After all, the royal family stayed at Buckingham Palace during the Blitz when Hitler's bombs were raining down in <laughs> on London. Hitler couldn't get them to move, and I don't think a no-deal Brexit is going to cause any trouble at all. Um, I don't think there'll be any riots. Uh, I think it'll be accepted. There'll be a few blips as we settle into a post-Brexit environment for a few weeks. But, uh, you know, the Remainers, those who want us to stay in the European Union and who lost the referendum uh, and who lost key votes in Parliament during the, the recent debates, um, they're becoming hysterical. Um, they're raising the ante that uh, making the great scare, as it's called, as big as possible. Uh, they're telling us that we won't get uh, any food, that the shops will be empty, that we, our water will be pure, that medicines won't be available. And now they're telling us there'll be troops in the street and their whole family will be evacuated. People just laugh. So are they then predicting that there'll be some sort of blockade of the UK by the EU? Or, well, I mean, what, how can they possibly... Well, I did see it. That, yes, they are in, in, to a certain extent. However, the EU has said it's, uh, it's made continuously plans uh, for a smooth uh, uh, transit of goods should there be a no-deal Brexit. Uh, and the government is making lots of contingency plans... Uh, they're partly being held up by the House of Lords, which has violently remained. Uh, and uh, half the cabinet, including the, the Treasury Minister, the, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Trade Minister, and the Business Ministers are all mad Remainers. So they've been encouraging industry to say that, you know, they're going to lose millions and make millions unemployed and the whole economy will collapse uh, in order to try and forestall. Uh, no deal, which is looking quite likely because the government's withdrawal agreement with the EU uh, was voted down by the largest majority ever in Parliament. Uh, but there was an amendment the other day saying that if she could get part of the agreement which it agreed to uh, changed or radically modified, then perhaps Parliament would pass it. So um, she's going back to Brussels telling them that she no longer agrees to the agreement she made with them uh, and that she wants these radical changes. Why Brussels should listen to her, I don't know. But uh, I don't really think it's in the interest of Brussels to have no deal. So they might uh, give her a few conciliatory gestures. Whether these would be enough to change opinion in the House of Commons, I doubt. But she, she would come back. And, and, and meantime, while all this is happening... Uh, the clock is ticking away, and we're getting closer and closer to the 29th of March when, by law, we leave the European Union. So now, please share with us what's happening in Parliament. There was a lot of to and froing the last time we spoke, and we're trying to stay up on what's happening, but it's happening uh, in spurts and starts. And I just read yesterday that there's a group of MPs. Uh, conservative and Labour who are talking about forming a, a new political party. What are these? What do they expect to, to accomplish in 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 a, in a month and a half? Well, uh, the the real debate is whether uh, the prime minister can get approval for her plan, which is an absolutely dreadful plan. But never mind, never mind she's agreed to it. Um, and and I say it was defeated by uh, historically the largest. Uh, vote in, in parliamentary history, but 
Then some Tories concocted uh, an amendment um, to a motion that she'd put forward, which said that if she went back to Brussels and got the Irish part of the plan changed or dropped, then uh, Parliament might well vote for, for, for it. So that's what she's trying to do. Uh, but the, both parties uh, are split. Both major parties are split. The um, the Tories are split between Remainers and uh, Brexiteers, and so is the Labour Party. The, the majority of the Tory grassroots, the membership, are Brexiteers and uh, are now favour a no-deal rather than the Prime Minister's deal. But the Cabinet is about at least half uh, Remain. The House of Lords is Remain. And uh, Mrs. May herself, of course, was originally remained. So um, there's a large rearguard action being fought by the Remainers who want to frustrate uh, any possibility of us leaving without a deal. Now, if, that's if, really the nub of it. If a hard Brexit takes place and no deal of Brexit takes place, there's, there's a lot of talk about the British economy, and you touched on it earlier, uh, having a terrible time. And one of the stories that's making its way around the world is Nissan uh, cancelling uh, the building of a plant in the UK. Well, Nissan, in the letter to it, was going to build a new car. Uh, in Sunderland uh, at a factory there, and it sent a letter to the workers saying there would be no redundancies whatsoever, but the new car wasn't going to be built. And the new car isn't going to be built, not because of Brexit, but because uh, it failed the new diesel emissions tests in in the European Union. If you remember, not so long ago, there was a huge scandal in Germany when the German motor companies and then the Japanese were found to have cheated on diesel emission standards. Well, that's meant that there's been a new standard set uh, for diesel cars, and this new car that was to be built in Sunderland is a diesel car. And the fact is it's failed the emission tests in Europe and can't be sold in Europe, so there's no point in building it. So they're going to build it in Japan. So tell us, please, what do you expect is going to happen? If you push all of the, the, the noise to the side and you're left with the issue, what happens on March 29th? Well, I, I sincerely hope we, we leave without a deal and that um, uh, we can then get back to be a normal self-governing democracy again uh, in charge of our own laws, our own trade, our own borders, and our own finance. Uh, it may be that the, the government will get the European Union to modify the degree that Mrs. May has already stupidly agreed to, uh, and in which case, if that happened, we would uh, be leaving uh, with no problem about differences in tariffs or regulatory standards or anything else, but we will have agreed to pay £39 billion uh, to the EU in the hope of getting a free trade treaty after a an interim period of two years. Now, um, this all seems to me a very bad bargain. I I don't think the House of Lords in the report a couple of years ago said we don't owe them a penny. 
uh, and if we were outside the EU without a deal, we wouldn't right. have to pay them a penny. So we'd save thirty-nine billion pounds for a start. All right. Not to mention uh, all the money we had to pay in year after year, we would still have to pay in. Yeah. And of Professor, course, we could get rid of all their external tariffs. Yeah. Professor Sked, thank you so much. And you don't see the, you don't see the royal family being uh, grabbing their suitcases and and, and leaving, huh? No, I, I think the Queen will be killing herself laughing. <laughs> thank you for talking to us today or tonight for you. Thank you. Professor, right, Professor Alan Sked, it's night time for him, joining us from the, uh, from the UK, from London. From the UK, let's go to Switzerland, and joining us is Lucy Stamm. Mr. Stamm has been a guest on this program on a number of occasions, and we always appreciate him joining us and talking about the referendum process. Lucy, thank you very much for the time. So in England, they're having all sorts of issues following through on the Brexit referendum, which was, we want to leave Europe, the European Union. But in Switzerland, how, how long, for how many years has the referendum process been in place? Hello, thank you very much for having this interview. Um, for quite a number of years, um, people realize more and more than, that it is a necessity that you keep the power in the hands of the people. And we have lots of political discussions which go into this direction. Now, how many times a year are referendums held in Switzerland? That's about three times a year in average, sometimes even four. And let's say um, these three Sundays when you have to go and vote, you have three different topics. That's average. And we've talked about it this before. Any Swiss citizen can suggest a change in law or a new law or a new regulation or a new way or a changed way of doing things. And that is then there for all Swiss citizens to consider. And if 100,000 Swiss citizens say, yeah, I think we should have this on the referendum ballot, it gets on the referendum ballot. That's totally correct what, what you said. Switzerland has um, by now 8 million inhabitants, and you need 100,000 signatures to bring any subject um, to the people to vote on. So that is in comparison to Canada, if I understand correctly, um, if it would be 300,000 people or 400,000 people, something like this. Um, if, you, if you find people to sign 300,000, then you could vote on the whole Canada um, whether you need additional um, road tunnels, whether you need um, um, higher taxes or lower taxes, etc. any subject. You can vote on if you have 100,000 signatures here in Switzerland. Or if we need new fighter planes instead of buying Australia's old correct. fighter planes. Correct. Totally correct, this example. And which, which, was, which actually was a referendum question in Switzerland about buying fighter planes a few years ago, right? Yes, that's co- some years ago. And then um, another an, an example which is kind of repeating itself is more immigration, less immigration, better secured um, borders or, or not, etc. anything. You just bring 100,000 people, and if you succeed, then the Swiss population, like one or two years later, if you turn in these signatures, one or two years later, you have to vote on that subject. So, Lucy, how is the situation going with the immigration question? Because Switzerland did not sign on to the UN Migration Compact, but there was talk about the country perhaps... not, yes. Uh, but there was talk about the country perhaps signing on later, and you told us that while the Swiss people uh, voted in a referendum, 
against opening the borders, the federal government was trying to push back against the Swiss people's decision. Also, this is totally correct. In some way, it is comparable to the Brexit problem you mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And I think the population of England, they have um, and they are afraid of uncontrolled immigration. And that's why they voted um, for Brexit. And I think it is an immigration problem. Now, as far as Switzerland is concerned, we have the same problem as um, um, the people in England. The population feels it's a danger if you open the borders, and the governments that don't realize how dramatic the situation is. The best um, example in Europe is Angela Merkel in Germany. And, and I mean, this is insane what she did in 2015. She said, okay, no problem, we'll make it, welcome, welcome. Um, this is a tendency in Europe which is very dangerous. Now, the Swiss people, in a referendum, decided against that kind of policy, right? Correct. But, Correct. The, but the government, the, the, in, in this instance, as, as you told us last time we spoke, the federal government in Switzerland is pushing back against the decision of the people. What's, who's going to win this? That's unfortunately correct, and I don't know who's going to win it. But indeed, in February 2014, the majority of the Swiss population said, we want to have a con- controlled, limited immigration. And now, then, five years later, nothing has happened. And um, the people in the streets, um, or in the population, slowly, slowly is getting um, more angry. I mean, um, you can see in France what this can lead to. Um, In Switzerland, we are far from having a riot on the streets. But um, in England, um, I don't know, perhaps in two or three or four years, um, they have problems on the street. And then I understand that the security people say we have to have a plan to get the queen away. Yeah. What... uh what do you we have about a minute left here what do you think is going to happen in the european parliamentary elections coming up um i think and in a certain way i hope there's going to be a tendency towards the right because the people say i do not agree with our elite and perhaps we've had the same problem in the united states two years ago all right Lutzi, it's always good talking to you. It's after 10 o'clock at night in, uh, on Sunday night uh, for you, and I, I thank you for making time for us. Thank you, and good luck to Canada. Thank you, sir. All the very best, and good luck to Switzerland. I could, uh, by the way, I could have done this interview in Swiss, the native Swiss language, but then you probably wouldn't understood a word I said. Or then again, maybe you would. Uh, the Swiss have had this system of referenda forever, and the people... Any one of them, any Swiss citizen, can start the process, anyone. And if 100,000 people in the country, a country population of 8 million, any 100,000 people say, I like that idea, or I think, even if I don't like it, I think we should be voting on it. I think this should be a decision made by the people, not by the politicians. That's the way it's supposed to go then. And traditionally has. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. 
Have a great weekend.